right, everyone. Hello out there to all the listeners that are listening on your various streaming podcast platforms. My name is Terrell Parker. If you've listened to the MAC podcast a few times by now, you know that I'm a manager at the Center to End the Epidemics. That means we're working overtime to end the HIV epidemic in the United States and its territories. I'm your host for this episode of Real Talk with MAC, and I am joined by... I would like to say a really distinguished panel. And you know, we use that word oftentimes, but when I say together, we have put together a great panel to talk to you today on what we call National Black HIV Awareness Day. We're having an important and a timely conversation on the intersections of HIV-related stigma and National Black HIV Awareness Day. If you're not familiar, this day is in observance provides an opportunity to increase HIV education, testing, community involvement, and treatment among Black communities. The first National Black HIV Awareness Day was marked in 1999 as a grassroots education effort to raise awareness about HIV and AIDS prevention, care, and treatment specifically in communities of color. If you're new to the MAC podcast, we've shared some of the numbers before, and we know why it's important for us to honor and observe this day to talk about National Black HIV Awareness Day. So my amazing, amazing guests are here to help us. We're specifically talking about HIV-related stigma and its impacts on our efforts to end the HIV epidemic in the United States. One thing that has become my mantra over the last year is that we cannot end the HIV epidemic in the United States if we do not reduce and eliminate HIV-related stigma. Y'all know before I came to NMAC, I worked in the HIV workforce for a long time, and I saw the impact of HIV-related stigma on my community and how it impacted people's ability to either go to the doctor and stay in care, to get tested for HIV and other STIs. I've seen it, I've felt it, and we are here to talk about it today. Why? Our guests are going to share some important numbers and information why it's important for us to always raise and elevate the conversation of stigma, but why it's always important for us to raise and elevate the conversation around what it means to end HIV specifically in the Black community. So I have a really, 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 really amazing panel today. I'm going to start by introducing my director, Mr. Kenneth Pettigrew, who is the director for the Center to End the HIV Epidemics in the United States. Ken has been involved in the HIV workforce for over 20 plus years. He's done everything from working at the D.C. Health Department to being an executive director for several organizations. He hails from the city, the great city of Chicago, Illinois, and he's here to just share more of his knowledge and his wisdom and his experience of over 25 plus years working in the HIV workforce. Up next, we have Mr. Daniel Driffin, MPH, and a doctoral candidate. Soon I get to call him Dr. Daniel, Dr. Daniel Driffin, D, D, D times three. I've known Daniel for several years now. I came up in the game as a young public health professional 
um, working behind of Daniel. Daniel is an amazing advocate, an amazing person living with HIV who has done amazing work from starting Thrive SS down in Atlanta to speaking at the National Democratic Convention. I mean, Daniel, that's nothing that Daniel has not done. So Daniel is here to share some of his amazing wisdom with this as well. I cannot forget the amazing Dr. Bishop, she has many titles, and it just shows the depth of knowledge and wisdom that she has. She is the CEO and founding executive director of Aspirations, Inc. in Louisiana, Baton Rouge, Louisiana. She does amazing work, both in the church and faith community, and she has been working since 2001, since she got the calling to end the HIV epidemic in the United States. Y'all are in for a treat. Anytime you get to hear Dr. Joyce speak, Dr. Joyce Turner Keller speak, it is truly a blessing. Um, we have Marnina Miller, who is, I like to call her like a personal mentee of mine. I met Marnina Miller a few years ago when we were doing the Building Leaders of Color cohort for our youth. And Marnina has been an amazing rock star. She's taken over TikTok. If you haven't heard her name, you'll see her all over the place. Because when you talk about a young person going viral and doing great work on social media to raise awareness about stigma and HIV, Marnina is the person to follow. And last, but certainly not least, someone who is new to me, but not new to this work. I learned today that she has been doing this work since she was 15, since she was called to do HIV outreach, and she's still doing it. She is currently a cyber security specialist. And I told her that I love that because it just means that we're so diverse and we bring so much to this work. And sometimes it's people that are working directly in the workforce. Somebody, sometimes it's people that are volunteers that are working outside of the workforce. But once again, when we really talk about ending the HIV epidemic in the U.S., it's going to take all of us. So I'm really excited. She's one of our constituent advisory panel members, Miss. Libra Davis, who is also here with us to share some of her knowledge and some of her experience. So the topic, as I said today, is the intersection of HIV-related stigma and National Black HIV Awareness Day. So without further ado, I'm going to kick it off. And Ken, you know how, it, how we do it. We roll on the same team. So, you know, I got to throw the first question to you. And I like everyone to ask this question because it really sets the foundation and the tone for our conversation today. My first question to you, Ken, is why do you think it is important for us to acknowledge and recognize Black HIV Awareness Day? Simply, why is National Black HIV AIDS Awareness Day important? You know, I, I just think it's important that um, so many um, African Americans uh, have been impacted by HIV. Um, and, and it's not just those who have, you know, who are living with, but their relatives, their families, their friends. Um, we we can't not forget this, um, and we we don't do justice to the people who've done the work if we don't keep it on the radar. And so, when we think about um, populations, thinking about ending the epidemic, it's just really important. We always have it on the radar. This is you know that this is an important and an impactful to us. So for me, I think this day has to be um, amplified. We have to, if we don't, you know, we sort of lose traction. It is part of the ending epidemic plan. We talk about different populations who have been impacted by HIV. All right. Thank you, Ken. So we have to remember that it's important and it does impact our community. Dr. Joyce, from your perspective, 
why do you think it's important for us to recognize National Black HIV Awareness Day? I think it's uh, absolutely important. It's imperative that we uh, keep the conversation going about HIV and AIDS. And it's, for me, it is critical to put it at the forefront of everybody's mind because I think that's the only way we can eliminate the stigma around it. And it should be a conversation that is had at every at every 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 uh, kitchen table, uh, I think it's the kind of conversation that should be had, uh, so that we can eliminate the stigma. Because if we can do that, we don't have to fight so hard when it comes to prevention. If people are educated, and for me, being in the place that I stand in as a position of leadership as far as the church, I think that we need to make it more accepting because all too often in the spiritual arena, uh, HIV is the, it equals sex and sin. And I think that that conversation needs to be had because black people have been at the forefront of every civil rights mo- mo- movement. And for them to take a bad seat to a human rights movement when it's impacting us as a people that's a problem. So we must be visible and vocal in order to end the epidemic that's addressed, that are, that's uh, attached to HIV and stigma. Um, thank you, Dr. Keller. You bring up some really important parts, and I think it's important for us to circle back around on, um, specifically when we talk about, you know, the work that you do within the faith community um, and why that's so important, because I think that's something that oftentimes is missed from the work that we do. Um, So can you just tell maybe about some of the work that you do in the faith community and how you're um, working to reduce stigma through the work that you're doing in the faith community? One of the things that God has blessed me to do, he's given me the just the power of, 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 of speech. And I've, I'm able to uh, introduce to the church, uh, gen, I mean, gender acceptance. We, we talk about gender identity. We talk about acceptance. And we do it through theater. We do it uh, by going into very public settings, beauty shops, barbershops. Uh, we have outdoor concerts where we, we bring it with music and we make it a commonplace. And one of the best things that ever happened to me was to have spoken in Washington, D.C., and I delivered a speech and I was talking about how important it was to have these conversations at the table. So I was blessed to be awarded a grant to start uh, what was called Straight Talk at the Kitchen Table. And that has opened up critical conversations around HIV, AIDS, uh, sexual abuse. Uh, It's opened up a conversation about gender identity and acceptance and where young people find that this is a safe place for them to come. So what we have done is create a safe, a soft place for people to land when they're going through uh, the struggles of gender identity, acceptance, and rejection and alienation. And we make sure that the church, the church that I'm attending now, I've been tearing down some walls and eliminating some barriers because I just walked up in the church with the uh, HIV AIDS quilt and had somebody to hold it up 
and say, these are the people who are living with HIV. I'm one of them. So let's have a conversation. So that's what I'm doing. I'm just kicking in doors and uh, tearing down walls. And I'm letting people know that HIV has nothing to do with sin. It's a human condition. Absolutely. And I think that's important. Sometimes what we do, sometimes the work that we do will be welcome with open arms. And sometimes we do. We have to fight. We got to kick down doors and we have to make ourselves visible and seen. And so that people know that, guess what? HIV looks just like you. So I know, I don't know if you disclose this, but I know you you're, you disclose in open settings, you know, that you're a, a woman living with HIV, you know, an elder in the community living with HIV who is also a bishop and a black woman. So I think for a lot of people, they probably they probably have never seen someone who looks like you and who is as open and honest about their experience, you know, who talks openly with no shame. And I think that is just so powerful. And that right there, I think, is an amazing tool to eliminate stigma. So next, I want to pose the same question to Daniel. Daniel, from your perspective, why do you think it's important for us to recognize National Black HIV Awareness Day? And I'm going to throw a caveat. As a Black gay man living in the South, and when you hear the numbers, why do you think it's important for us to recognize Black HIV Awareness Day? I, I think you hit the nail on the head. I think it's the numbers. You know, oftentimes in many of the cities or counties that we call home, um, black gay men are still being told that they're diagnosed with HIV. You know, um, they're being told that not even you're diagnosed with HIV, you have AIDS, you know, as a result of your CD4 cells being so low or having other um, illnesses, you know, that are, that makes it an AIDS defining illness. So I definitely think the reason why February 7th is so crucial is the fact that we are still um, so heavily um, impacted with just a simple number of people who are told that they're positive every day of the week. Absolutely. So, Dave, you bring up a really good point. You know, we see it in the numbers. You know, we've heard from the CDC and I really don't like Given the numbers, because I almost feel like it's one of those things where it's like one of those prophecies, you put it out there and then. But I think it's important for us to know the numbers because it does motivate us to do the work and to do the work in the right areas, you know. So specifically, CDC put out that statistic in 2013 that one in two black gay men were going to contract HIV within their lifetime. We've seen the CDC data that they put out about Black women and HIV. If we added up all the number of women in the country that acquire HIV every year, they wouldn't equal the number of Black women. You know, I know that, and I'm talking about like really specifically locally, last year, 53% of the Black women that were diagnosed with HIV in my home state of Indiana, they received an AIDS diagnosis, or we now call it an advanced HIV or HIV-3 diagnosis. Um, so my question to you, Marnina, why do you think it's important for us to celebrate Black HIV or acknowledge Black HIV Awareness Day, specifically when we're talking about Black women and understanding that Black women are testing and learning at the time of learning their HIV 
acquisition, they're receiving, as Daniel said, an AIDS diagnosis or advanced HIV diagnosis. Why do you think it's important for us to recognize HIV Black Awareness Day for Black women? That's such a great and heavy question. Uh, We know that Black women are the providers for everyone. They put themselves on the back burner um, and they are the last to get tested because they're always caring for other folks. It comes to mind a friend of mine who received her diagnosis as a late stage HIV diagnosis because she had kids. She was working and going to school. And by the time she received her diagnosis, she was so sick because she had all these other things on her plate as a single mother. And so I think it's important for us to know that black women is no, we're not engaging in any other quote unquote risky behavior, but that we are caregivers for our community, that we're not only taking care of our own families, but we're taking care of the elderly people in our family, our kids. And, you know, we're just na- naturers and nurturers in our community. And so we have to do so many other things that sometimes our health comes on the back burner of that. You know, this is the 23rd year of National Black HIV AIDS Awareness Day. And this time is really an opportunity to increase really the HIV education, testing, and community involvement, and to talk about the various treatments among the Black community. There's such a taboo when we talk about sex and when we talk about a lot of other things around HIV, as Dr. Joyce was saying, especially because living in the South as I am, I live in the Bible Belt. And so to talk about sex is really taboo. And to have those conversations about sex and sexuality. Folks don't want to talk about that. And so we have to open up those conversations. And that's why I like to talk about sex positivity, because it really opens the conversation to know that sex doesn't have to just be for childbearing. It can also be for pleasure. And so when we start adding those different conversations in, we can then really discuss what the HIV epidemic entails. And so, you know, Black people, we as Black folks, we share the brunt of this epidemic. And it stated that 60% of those who are living with HIV are African-American folks. And so no one's coming to save us. No one is coming to save Black people or those most impacted by HIV. We have to save ourselves. And so we have to be a part of the solution. And so we have to make sure that we are acknowledging that this exists and really spreading the awareness about HIV. Okay, you just said a whole word right there. But one thing I want to pull out and really highlight that you spoke on, and it's something that I think often gets missed in our discourse, is you said like Black women, for example, they prioritize everyone else over themselves, over their own health. So a lot of times when folks get tested, it's not because you've just engaged in sex that's so much riskier than others, but it's because... Historically, you know, Black women have been taught to self-sacrifice and put everyone else, your children, your family, your parents above above yourself. So I want to ask this, you this question, Marnina. How are you prioritizing Black women in your work? How do you get Black women to prioritize themselves? So I love to really center the conversation about women's health by engaging in work on social media. Um, Social media has been something, especially during this pandemic, that has been a way to elevate the voices of folks that look like me. As a dark-skinned, black, fat, black woman living with HIV, it's important that people see me and hear me. And I say all of those titles so that folks can know what I look like, so they can know that I look just like their auntie, their grandmother, their cousin, and that this exists in our community. And so I raise that awareness not only by my visibility, but by elevating the conversation for my sisters. If I don't see someone on a panel 
on a community advisory board or on um, any type of work that I'm doing and I don't see that my sisters are on that work with me, I will invite them into the room and I'll make sure that folks like me are getting those same opportunities and I don't um, placehold those opportunities for myself. And so I really want to encourage other folks to do the same thing and invite other people to your platforms with you so that you can elevate the voices of others. Just repeat that last line for me because it was it was golden. I want to make sure people hear it. I want to make sure that we're elevating the voices of others by allowing other women on our platforms. And so if you see a sister that's doing the work, that wants to be more engaged into the work, invite her on. Bring her to those discussions with you. If you see that she's engaging and wants to engage in HIV work, bring her on to those platforms and make sure that you're helping to elevate other voices other than just your own. Absolutely. And we're going to close out this last question with Libra. Would you mind answering, why do you think it's important for us to acknowledge National Black HIV AIDS Awareness Day from your perspective? Thank you, Terrell. Um, from my perspective, first, I want to say happy Black History Month, everyone. Um, I think it's very beautiful that this also occurs during Black History Month because that's something that is so dear and special to everyone that's in this community because oftentimes we are combating the negativity of what has happened to us in the past. And we can also take that same energy and uplift our people and our communities. So why is it important? It is important because um, I'm a Black transgender woman, okay? And oftentimes we are left out Oftentimes, we don't have the information where there's proper numbers that reflect who we are in, you know, in these big grand scheme of statistics and numbers. We're not getting tested. Our numbers are not being reflected. Um, Access to care, um, access to support, those are main barriers. And so it is very important that not only just during this time of Black History Month, but then also... Um, HIV and AIDS awareness that we are bringing in those conversations with our family members. We're making it easier for folks to be able to have these tough conversations with one another. We're able to have these conversations in a relaxed setting where folks now don't have to worry about being judged or disclosing their information of their status and being ridiculed because of either how they contracted it, who they were involved with, and all these other different factors that really don't make, it it, it doesn't make sense at the the end of the day. You know, it has nothing to do with it. At the end of the day, we all deserve to be loved, cared for, and shown the same respect as everyone else. So it's very important that during this time, we take this time to have these conversations. We take this time to get the proper education. And with the proper education, we're, we're also clearing out that misinformation and making sure that folks are on board in that aspect as well. All right, Libra, you bring up a really good point because we can't have this conversation in isolation. We can't have this conversation about stigma and eliminating the HIV epidemic in the Black community without talking about history because history informs where we are today. You know, one of my favorite quotes is often used, if we don't learn from our history, 
And we're bound to repeat it. And I think you bring up such a great point that as we have this conversation about National Black HIV AIDS Awareness Day, we have to make sure that we also have it in the context of our history as Black people living, existing, being in this country. So my next question, and I want to start by asking this question to Marnina specifically, what is HIV-related stigma look like in your community? And this is how I am defining stigma. Um, stigma involves negative attitudes of discrimination against someone based on um, a characteristic such as mental illness, health condition, or disability. Um, the stigma can be something seen or unseen. So when we talk about specifically HIV-related stigma, oftentimes HIV-related stigma, sometimes it can be the unseen, you know, because there often is not a distinguishable mark for people living with HIV. So my question to you, Marnina, what does HIV-related stigma look like in your community for people who maybe listening and have no idea what we're talking about today. So that is a good one. So HIV related stigma in a lot of youth communities, um, because I'm, I guess I am still considered a youth yet. You know, I got a couple more years left. <laughs> but for me, HIV stigma, related stigma is really heavy on social media. When folks share memes that are saying like, oh, you can get HIV through bananas or when people post folks HIV medications online. I've seen that before. I've also seen where people out folks for their HIV diagnosis online. That's a real issue. Um, I live in Houston, Texas. And so in Texas, we have a lot of HIV criminalization laws and issues going on. So that is some really heavy stigma that's delved into my community. And also, even when folks are seeing folks go to different community-based organizations that they know that folks visit that are living with HIV to receive treatment and care, and they make fun of those folks for doing so. You know, that is a lot of heavyweighted stigma. And all of that stigma stops people from getting on treatment, from seeking care, and even from getting tested or staying on preventative measures like PrEP. And so those issues really impact and are really heavily weighted with stigma. Absolutely. And I told you I have one question I wanted to ask just for you. So last year, the two of us, we were a part of something I like to say was a part of like pop culture history. I'm going to just say that. We go look back on it and say we were a part of a history making event. So last year we saw the backlash and you mentioned it on social media. A lot of times we see stigma play out on social media, whether that's through memes or just negative comments, stigmatizing language. One of the boldest, most clear examples of HIV-related stigma that we saw happen last year were comments made by famous rapper Baby at the Rolling Loud concert, um, where he had some very negative things to say about people with HIV. Um, and also after that, continued negative comments. And Marnina and I, we were among the nine HIV activists that were chosen to meet and sit down and have a conversation with the baby and to provide education to him so that he can hopefully not make this mistake again. Um, and we haven't really had a chance to talk about that since we met with him last year. So what was your experience sitting down with the baby, talking to him, and educating a superstar about HIV-related stigma. It was a power-filled moment. 
to be able to sit down with someone who has the audience attention of millions of people. He has the ear and the influence over millions of folks and to be able to relay the messages about HIV stigma and how that negatively not only impacts us as you know as me as people living with HIV but also to talk about how that impacts black women because I brought to the carpet hey when you talk about people living with HIV you're also not only talking about me but it could be you know your daughter one day it could be your mother your cousin and he really heard me and understood what I was saying. And I even challenged him to not talk about people living with HIV as such a negative connotation. And he, at the end of the time, at the end of the conversation, was able to relay what I said. He said, made me know that he knew exactly what I was saying. And he reiterated the conversation verbatim. And so I know that I had his ear and I know that he was listening. The only downside is I would have wanted him to have some follow up. I gave him some specific instructions about follow-up. And what's important is that we're not only calling people to the carpet, but we're making sure that we're giving them specific instructions on what we need from them going forward. I not only need you to understand and retain this information, but I need for you to be able to give it to other people and for you to invite me into your circle so that I can educate others around you. And so it was an amazing experience. I just wish that little tiny bit that we could have done some more work with him and his team going forward. But overall, it was a powerful moment. And I was so blessed and honored to be in that space. Likewise, I definitely, definitely agree. It was a powerful, transformative experience for me because I shared my experience um, as a person living with HIV for the first time, you know. And at that time, I had just been diagnosed with my HIV for less than three months, you know. So I shared to him the story of how I felt as a fan listening to his songs and then a few weeks later hearing him say discriminatory things about people with HIV as if they couldn't listen to his music because they had HIV. And the powerful thing that I remember saying to him was, what makes the difference between me three months ago when I didn't have HIV and now? What's the difference between me as a fan? What's the difference between me as a person, you know? And one thing that I also took away from that conversation is how powerful it is when you have a platform, how powerful it is when people listen to you, but how you often need people, you need representation from real people sometimes so that you can use your platform in the right way. Because we can either use our platform to spread misinformation or we can use our platform to educate, inform, and empower people in our community. And I think for anyone with celebrity, a podcast, a blog, any type of following, you have a certain level of responsibility, you know? So I'm with you. I thought it was a great conversation. I thought he was receptive. And if you're listening, if your people are listening, we're waiting for the follow-up and we would be happy to continue to do more education because it was a great moment for the culture to have some eyes on this issue, but we still got to continue to educate our community. So Ken, I want to ask you this next question. What does HIV-related stigma look like in your community? And then I'm going to switch to my next question. You know, um, um, I've always been fascinated or by the conversation around HIV stigma. Um, and this is not a textbook definition, but I believe HIV stigma is what you believe others think about you. And um, for me, uh, a person living with HIV, when I walk into a space, I'm always wondering, what are you thinking about me? What, are you, what notions or what have you drummed up? 
what conclusions have you made? And so I think it's important for um, organizations and for entities to go, what do people think you're thinking about them? And so for me, HIV-related stigma is this basic idea, how does that, how, what do people hear when they walk into your space? What are they experiencing? And for me, that's so important. And how do you mitigate that? And how do you go, no, that's not what we're thinking. That's not what's going on. But it also takes an organization to have some critical thinking and some critical assessment. I think we assume when we employ people who look like us, when we employ people who are living with HIV, we check the boxes. And that doesn't get us where we're, when we talk about mitigating HIV stigma, it really is a critical assessment of the things we're doing and how we're treating folks that we really need to think about. And so for me, when I think about HIV-related stigma, it's like, what are you thinking about me when I walk in? And so how do we sort of um, do the opposite and sort of amplify a, neg- I mean, a positive space for folks and affirm people in a way that's not about your own personal notions or judgments, but it really is about, are you really paying attention to the person in front of you? Can I jump in real quick? Absolutely. So I, I think that makes perfect sense, Ken. And, you know, when we think about, oh, we're hiring folks living with HIV, so stigma should not be there. But again, like stigma operates in multiple levels, right? So you have, so what you, so what you, the definition or the connotation that you just said, thinking about what others think about me, you know? So like, I see that as anticipated stigma, which is one of the many levels of stigma. You know, you still have internalized stigma, which is a devalue of self as a result of HIV status. Then you have like structural um, stigma and that can be like HIV criminalization or, you know, a pay or blast resort because of your HIV status, you know? So I think, until we truly like put it all together um, to really begin to have those deeper dialogues around how do we reduce stigma on multiple levels at multiple intersections, you know, paired with race, gender, sexual orientation, sexual positioning, um, class, education, you know, that's, that's, that, that's where the ultimate work um, will be, especially if we are to reduce uh, stigma to increase um, HIV health outcomes. Thank you, Daniel. I mean, you bring up a really good point. You know, stigma looks different and there are various forms of stigma. You know, like you said, there's their anticipated stigma, the stigma you may feel just as a person living with HIV. Um, you may feel that stigma by association. You know, I know tons of folks, you know, I've been working in HIV for over 10 years and I've only been living with HIV for one. But to the outside world, you know, I've been living with HIV for 10 years because I, because I'm associated with it. You know, sometimes you become stigmatized by association. You know, so stigma is so multifaceted and we've seen the ways that it really directly impacts our work. You know, like Marnina said, some people don't want to go to a clinic because it's associated with HIV. Some people don't want their medication because it's associated with HIV. Ken, go ahead, chime in. I, I appreciate, Daniel, your, 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 what you're saying. Is what you're talking about, there are so many layers and there's so much complexity to it. It is not a simple answer. It really isn't. And I think that's the struggle with organizations and people. 
like, where do I fit in? Where do I fix this? How do I, you know, there's so many ways to get in. And I think that's the biggest struggle, I think, with organizations. Like, I don't know how to fix it at this level. I don't know how to fix it at that level. So I think you raise a really great point. Like, this is so layered. And I think people or agencies may often just sort of walk away from it or go, Ugh, I'm going to shy away from this because I don't know how to fix it because it's, it's a big elephant. It is an absolutely big elephant. I love when the questions just flow together because that's really leading right into my next question. I'm going to start off with Libra. Libra, what are you doing in your community to combat or reduce HIV-related stigma? I feel that conversations need to be had that are real conversations. And when I say real conversations, not to put the spotlight and, you know, put you on the spot, Marnina, but um, I knew I seen your name. I know I seen your face from somewhere. And you just did something um, recently, a couple weeks ago, that aired um, on YouTube. And I was like, that voice sounds so familiar. And just that atmosphere where you were with um, Mr. Johnson and um, Miss Dominique, and y'all were having that conversation amongst yourselves at that table, those type of conversations are needed more within our community. And then paired with that, making sure that everyone is being able to be called to the table to join in on the conversation. And then pairing on that, being able to, um, like you stated before, erasing the misinformation. A lot of the girls that are trans, we can get together, we can kiki, we can break bread with each other, we can talk about the trade, we can talk about all these different things that's going on. But breaking it down to actually having the conversation like, sis, I'm going through something and this is what I'm going through and this is what's happening to me. Those conversations, they happen um, on their own time, but they're not, you, you don't, you're not around to witness them as much as often. And so having the capacity to be able to have those conversations with your good girlfriends and with your community members that you trust, you know, outside of your healthcare provider, because let's keep it real, a lot of folks do not trust their healthcare providers because of certain things that, you know, they do and they don't do when it comes to helping the community. That causes people to fall out of care and causes people to have a little bit of information, but not the full information to be able to take it to other people and say, hey, this is what's going on. This is what we need to do to fix it. And so you asked me, what have I seen and what I am doing? Um, as much as possible, my work started with working with you, 13 to 24-year-olds. And we would do outreach. We would have these conversations kind of in this kind of setting where our programming was based around having these conversations on how to combat the type of conversations on how to bring people in, the type of conversations to have with family members. And that's always stayed with me to have that type of rapport because I know the young people, how they are, they're so vulnerable. They are so many million different thoughts going in their minds. And they're they what they're looking for is someone to say, you know what, I I, I see you. And most of the time they don't have that. And so translating that into as of being an, more of an adult and being in my community, we still need to have people to say, I see you. And we don't have that. And so my biggest thing is this. It's the, the conversational piece is big, but it's about people going back to that, that, that test of time thing of being a human. Let's strip everything away. We're all humans. The titles of what you do at work is one thing, how much money you make is another thing, which whatever title that you may carry with you, at the end of the day, you are human. And you want someone to treat you humanly. 
you know, because at the end of the day, that's who we are. We are humans. And we all, the biggest thing that we need to charge each other with is love. And I don't want posters to be listening and be like, she coming with that lovey-dovey stuff. But that is the truth. We need to seriously come with this and strip things down to just, you're, we are all human. And we need to have those conversations in the proper manner and making sure that we're reaching people that are not at the table, reaching back to people who may not have a voice and elevate because they may not want to talk. But being, you know, that beacon to echo their their thoughts and how they feel and their position and stuff like that. So that's my little take on that. And I never, I never think um, love is corny. You know, some people like to say, oh, everybody used to talk about love. Love, it's so corny. But I think it's true. I've listened to one of my favorite songs today, um, Stevie Wonder. And then it's the classic line that says, don't delay, send your love in right away. I think that love is definitely a powerful tool. Um, and conversation is also a powerful tool as well. Um, and one thing we talk about in uh, one of the training programs that we are that we have launched here at Mac is just how important it is to have difficult dialogue, whether that's with your family, whether that's with your friends, whether that's with your community, whether that's in your workspace. Having that conversation and that difficult dialogue is definitely a powerful tool to reduce stigma and to end this HIV epidemic in the Black community. So, Ken, you know, my next question is to you on the topic of stigma, on the topic of doing work in the community, can you share um, from your perspective about Escalate, which is the amazing project that we have here called Ending Stigma Through Collaboration and Lifting Auto-Empowerment. Ken, how is Escalate going to help us, as people say, move the needle on reducing and eliminating stigma? Uh, I think it's it's an exercise in critical thinking. It's an exercise and assessment. Um, it's an honest understanding of what you know, what you don't know. Uh, it's a 360 look at who we are as individuals and who we are as, um, as organizations. And again, you, you walk into that not making assumptions because you're part of something doesn't make you great at it. So it allows you to take a step back, whether we're talking about the trainings for individuals uh, and organizations, where we're talking about TA. TA is interesting enough. I believe TA is one of the most vulnerable spaces for organizations to admit that you need TA is a vulnerable space. And then you have a learning collaborative, learning collaborative, like how do we learn together as organizations, as a group of folks, and how do we take something from an idea to practice? So I I think that those three components of it really sort of are, they're just a great way around critical thinking and assessment. But one of the most things, what, what is so important about Escalate it's a space of vulnerability. And I think that's important when we talk about HIV stigma, the willingness to take a step back and say, could I, am I, do we, should we? And so that's what I think Elevate, um, excuse Escalate is um, available to do is really take a step back and do some um, some critical thinking, but be vulnerable about your organization and yourself. Thank you, Ken. You bring up a good point. One thing that's really crucial about Escalate in general is it's a lot of self-reflection, whether that's you as an individual, whether that's from your organization, whether that's your community impact. There's a heavy deal of self-reflection and evaluation to say, in what role do I play in the process? Where am I at? And how can I contribute more? So Ken brought up some very good points. We do have three components of Escalate that organizations can participate and involved in. They take different levels of engagement, different levels of hours, and different levels of commitment. 
And I think that we've really designed a project where organizations, no matter where they are in talking about stigma and figuring out a plan for addressing stigma, I think Escalate can really capture organizations and help them be involved at every level of the project. Daniel, you're one of our amazing Escalate facilitators. From your perspective, when we think about some of the conversations that we've had today, how do you think Escalate is the answer? Yeah, I think Escalate is a part of the answer. Um, you know, I, I think I think we need multiple, just like there's multiple words within a sentence, I think Escalate is paired with other tools. You know, those tools must um it must, you know, also include treatment for people living with HIV. Um, those tools have to have prevention, you know, for folks who are vulnerable to HIV. Um, it has to include the social determinants of health, you know. Because, again, like, if we cannot talk about how racism, how how racism impacts, like, all of these um, intersecting identities, you know, we, we're doing a disservice, you know, and we ultimately will not see the success or see the challenge to the systems that we need to see challenged, you know? So I definitely think Escalate is a piece of, um, a piece of that puzzle um, as we think about ending HIV or definitely reducing HIV to the levels that we need to. Thank you. Thank you, Daniel. So my last question, and I'd like for everyone to answer this, if you can answer it in one sentence, okay? This is going to be my challenge for everyone. Marnina, we're going to start with you. And if you can complete, I have two sentences. You can complete one or both. I won't make it too complicated for you, but you have to do one of them. In order to end HIV-related stigma, we must... So you can finish that sentence. Second sentence is, in order to end the HIV epidemic in the United States, we must. In order to end the HIV epidemic in the United States, we must include people living with HIV and those most vulnerable to HIV as an important voices to that answer. We have to have them in that room. We have to have them in that space. And we must have them we must have their voices at the table in order to end the HIV epidemic. All right. Thank you, Marnina. Libra, I'm coming to you next. If we were to end the HIV stigma, we must go into proper therapy. Therapy, And what that means is starting with self. And once we are able to go with self, we are able to help others. And that would bleed into, if we were to end the HIV epidemic for the U.S., that means that all those people that are brought into the conversation, that are the voices, that are being elevated, that are giving the proper information, that are eliminating the misinformation, um, we are able to set a standard and we are able to lead by example. And we will come to that point where we will see reduced numbers. And we will have more people on board with tapping into their own personal um, health and caring for the health of others. Daniel, if we're going to eliminate HIV-related stigma, we must. Or if we're going to end the HIV epidemic in the U.S., we must. I think I will answer this for um, both questions. And I I think it's exactly what my um, other panelists has already said. 
you know, I think we must we must meaningfully invest in people living with HIV to train, um, to hire, to maintain us in these key leadership roles. We have to develop um, new programs. We have to be the one to implement new programs. And most importantly, we have to be the ones to evaluate the programs. Um, so we have to be there. We have to be there. We have to go into the many jurisdictions and create educational opportunities for the least of these to be able to, you know, be a program manager, to be the program evaluator, to be the board members, um, to meaningfully change HIV as we know it. Ken, we'll close it out with you. I'm going to take a stab at this um, for both. I think that we need to be vulnerable. We need to be transparent and intentional. Uh, Whether we're talking about reducing HIV stigma or we're talking about getting to uh, ending the epidemic, I think those three elements have to be incorporated and I really want to pay attention to like being vulnerable and transparent because if we're really interested in reducing HIV stigma, there's a space of vulnerability and being transparent about how we do our work that we have to ask ourselves about. So for me, those three words are, can be operationalized, whether we're talking about ending the epidemic or whether we're talking about reducing HIV stigma. Absolutely. Thank you, Ken. And thank you to everyone. Somehow we lost Dr. Joyce Turner Keller, but I know she is somewhere hopefully resting um, from all of the work that she's been doing these past few weeks. So thank you to, of course, Dr. Joyce Turner Keller, Marnina Miller, Ken Pettigrew, my amazing director at the center, Daniel Driffin, and Libra Davis for being a part of today's podcast episode. In summary, as we discussed, today's podcast was really to talk about the intersections of National Black HIV Awareness Day and HIV-related stigma. As we mentioned earlier, the point and the purpose of why we're all here is to raise awareness and education around testing treatment for people living with HIV. One message we want you to take away from today, I would like for you all to take away the message that is possible. I've seen it happen. I think we have all the tools that we have to prevent new HIV acquisition and to make sure that people living with HIV truly live an optimal life, happy, healthy, long life with PrEP, with treatment as prevention, with amazing testing and training programs like Escalate. I think we really have all the tools to end this epidemic, but if we're going to do it, we have to get serious about reducing stigma, and we have to get serious about focusing our efforts on the Black community because we need the effort and the focus if we're going to reduce it in our community. Thank you all. Please follow us on all of our social media platforms, MACHIV. Be looking out for future episodes of Real Talk with MAC. Have a fantastic night. Be sure to share this podcast with your friends, your family, so that we can do what we said we hope to do on National Black HIV AIDS Awareness Day. Raise awareness. Thank you again to my panelists. Have a great night. It's been great talking with you. And I'll see you next time.